It's the excitement when each day and each night meant something different and new. In a special place where the characters hold you as their stories unfold to make a magical view. It's somewhere where the best is happening night and day. Somewhere where the laughs are shaking the blues away. Movies filled with stars, dramatical sports, enough for fans, fanatical. I can't make it to an radical good things happen on NBC. Let's all be there. It must be NBC. Let's all be there. People come together in the moments that they share on NBC. Let's all be Resume. Noun. One. A summing up. Summary. Two. A brief written account of personal, educational, and professional qualifications and experience. You may be surprised to hear about how much better prepared I am for comic reader resume than in prior years, or really my whole decade plus of producing related content. It probably doesn't seem like it from the rambling reveries of the previous episode and the fact that this quarter will have some books from two of its months omitted here. Yet the bulk of the summer media coverage remains. The problem is also the solution. I've kept circling back to older material missed as the show has progressed in fits and starts, with lengthy gaps caused by my trying to process new recollections or uncovered material. I've also expanded multimedia coverage, and realizing that the dawn of my having a relationship with my father's family basically multiplies the scope of my comics coverage. To sort it all out without constantly tripping over myself, I've done cursory research through the end of 1986. My hope is to be able to wrap up 1985 in the next few episodes, switch from quarterly to bi-monthly coverage, and lay down the necessary track to keep the evolving show chugging along. Plus, I really wanted to get the show back to well under half an hour as a break for both myself and the listeners from hours-long treks through our other podcasts. Podcasts, taking things a leisurely month at a time, you know? I'd make love to you in a New York minute and take my Texas time doing I'd do you everywhere but wrong. I'd make love to you in a New York minute and take my Texas time doing I'd prove that in my arms is where you belong. Still love Mike's Amazing World of Comics, but I have another missed title of note to catch up on. In early 1985, Modern Publishing acquired the rights to Voltron for a three-issue miniseries that received newsstand distribution. I vaguely remember picking them up at a funky convenience store near one of the family's shorter stays at an apartment, or maybe even the trailer. I don't know if this was the same Modern that did the Charlton reprints in the 1970s, but they certainly had a similar tendency toward hiring old Marvel bullpenners. These issues were drawn by Dick Ayers, but written by Henry Vogel, best known to the degree that he's known at all for the Little Red team book Southern Nights. I should maybe explain that in the wake of Transformers, there was a huge influx of Japanese animation imports involving transforming mechs. Obviously, so-called Japanimation had been coming in for decades, going back to the likes of Astro Boy and Speed Racer. I personally was most enamored with Battle of the Planets, which involved a team of bird-themed costume super agents battling an androgynous megalomaniac. They also flew avian starships that would merge at least once per episode into a gigantic flaming phoenix. The original Japanese series 
series was called Gatchaman and was much more adult themed, with the villain referenced as transsexual or hermaphrodite. For the US kids audience, the episodes were chopped to pieces and stitched back together by a robot narrator ripped off from R2-D2. I once got a limited articulation hollow quasi-statue of the team leader in white and blue, Mark, but it got lost in the great storage unit default of 1984. I also got into the first generation of Robotech, which was actually a separate entity called Macross that got smashed together with several other distinct series to allow for daily syndication of a single artificial American series. Macross was about a mammoth starship guarded by a bunch of robots that transformed into jets, battling towering blue aliens called Zentradi that were trying to wipe out humanity. There was a whole other show that was a part of Robotech where a massive squadron of various smaller vehicles all merged together into one giant robot. And I knew one guy who had that. For me, I only had a few of the Matchbox Robotech action figures, including star pilot Rick Hunter, his love interest Lisa Hayes, the Zentradi, Chiron, and Britai, plus Dana Sterling, who starred in the car robot generation. I'll be honest, since most of these figures were slender and feminine, they were all used as females in my play, regardless of their expressed gender. Voltron was part of this trend, and I guess at the time I was more invested in it of the three. For instance, I only ever bought one Robotech comic, and sporadically caught the back end of the cartoon after school. With Voltron, I watched the cartoon daily, which was a science fiction show about an interstellar kingdom where a group of color-coordinated pilots discovered ancient cat mechs that combined to form a humanoid power sword wielding Voltron. The team typically fought giant monsters, or kaiju, failing as a cast but combining to perform a bisecting sword chop fatality as the gestalt Voltron in most episodes. I also knew a guy who had the heavy metal build a Voltron set. I had even fewer of the plainly inferior panache place action figures, which looked like Fisher-Price adventure people that had been left out in the Texas sun too long. I probably had the villains, King Zarkon and Prince Lotor, and maybe a Prince Solura. So yeah, I bought all three issues of the comic before the property faded, not to be revived in print for decades. Now it's just a blip in my personal history. So that while I was looking for vintage novelties while in Japan, it was Gatchaman and Galgo 13 that got the nod over any of these mechs. With the Defender of the Universe out of the way, let's drill down into August of 1985. You can't say that the DC Challenge wasn't promoted. It seemed like every one of their titles had a house ad for the Exquisite Corpse, upscale format, direct sales only, round robin maxi series. The conceit was that there would be a different creative team for each issue, privy only the information from the previous issue, trying to stump the band with cliffhangers dumped into the lap of the next team. I was always terribly intrigued by the project, and while visiting a small local Oklahoma comic shop after the birth of my nephews, I picked up a set. For all its twists and turns, the one reveal they couldn't keep under wraps was that the result would be a complete mess and a waste of talent. That'll happen when you progress from a gimmick than a story. Speaking of talent, the Black and White Magazine relaunch of Savage Tales offered a lengthy installment of The Nom, drawn by Michael Golden, and the other creators were no slouches. I remember tossing through it at the stands, but it didn't fit neatly into any nerd genres, and the $1.50 cover price was probably prohibitive. I was still a bit too gentle for all that macho aggression, and to this day haven't read anything from its brief run. I think maybe my brother had a copy of Star Comics' Thundercats number 1. The cover's familiar, and so are the interiors, but not to the degree that they should be for a book that I would have read several times over. So 
but no, I think we'll table any further Thunder discussion until later. My brother would pick up Incredible Hulk number 312, the notable and notorious Bruce Banner abusive childhood issue, a few years down the line. Barry Windsor Smith has accused Bill Mantlo of plagiarizing the plot from a Hulk graphic novel that he was developing, and wouldn't ultimately see print until 2021's Monsters, likely to serve as his final major work in comics. Although both men are still alive, Smith moved into fine arc decades ago, and Mantlo suffered debilitating brain damage in the early 90s. Anyway, that issue made an impression on myself and others, helped to define Peter David's dozen years on the character, and the 2003 Ang Lee Hulk film. However, it was the next issue that I got out of a three-pack, the one where he's traveling the multiverse with sprites and Jerry Taliak continues fixing Mike Mignola's art. Not so memorable. Blue Devil's Summer Fun Annual Number 1 was more my speed, as the book's original creative team gathered together a misfit occult outfit out of the Creeper, Man-Bat, Black Orchid, the Demon Etrigan, Madame Xanadu, and the Phantom Stranger. It was a nice mix of obscurities I was either already familiar with or first being introduced to, although I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline. Was this a flea market buy or a back issue from Third Planet in 87? Maybe even Marauder Books in 89? I don't have the same youthful nostalgia toward this one, so probably a latter-day purchase. Less perplexing, Tales of the Teen Titans number 59 came off the stand at a convenience store, marking the end of new material under that title. It offered a reprint of the even then rather expensive bonus book that introduced the new Teen Titans, as well as a speedy team-up story that had appeared in a 1981 Best of DC Digest. Hey, it was all new to me. Unlike the reprints of the Baxter series that would follow, one of the worst decisions in DC history was to turn their top-selling team book and only competition against the X-Men into a direct market-only title that would get recycled into a shoddy newsstand edition with a year's delay. It killed pedestrian traffic to a book already suffering the loss of the artist that built the brand in the first place. I thought I might be a fan of Nightcrawler, but the first issue of his solo series helped disabuse me of that notion. Drawn by Dave Cockrum in full swashbuckler mode, I couldn't take the book seriously as an X-Men tie-in with all the interdimensional pirate nonsense. Claremont would of course double down on that when he spun Nightcrawler off and Nick Scalibur a few years later. One of the things I find so impressive looking back on Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 108, is how much it acts as a bridge between Dennis O'Neill's last, best Daredevil stories as he moved away from aping Frank Miller into his bitter noir style deployed on the question, but also to Miller's revered return to that title for the Born Again arc. The death of Gina Wolfe made some waves in its time, but is almost entirely forgotten today. Matt Murdock is even a supporting character throughout the story, and you don't get much more grim and gritty than a serial killer gunning down a priest in a confessional. Only one of the Sin Eater's victims was an established character, but David and Buckler imbue the rest with enough life in their brief appearances to make the killing spree feel momentous. Mark Gruenwald was also laying the groundwork for a scourge of the underworld around this time, so I wonder if this is a chicken and egg, things man and swamp thing. Ah, the moment I didn't know enough to dread. The surprise reveals in Dreadstar and Company number 6. Plan M is finally unveiled, offering a new twist on Jim Starlin's theocratic exploration begun in Warlock. On its own merits, not the strongest issue of the run, but a solid enough stopping point if you're going to announce that this was the last issue of the newsstand reprint series? See, I complain so much about Tales of the Teen Titans, but Epic giving a second life to a cult hit science fantasy series from several years earlier? Like ElfQuest, a worthy effort. And it's not like Starlin hasn't benefited from expanding the audience of his works through constant reprints. Besides learning that I wouldn't be able to get any more issues of my favorite comic until I gained access to a proper comic shop, I was also bummed that the lead story was truncated. The issue filled out by a Bernie Wrightson backup starring Aldo Gorney? <laughs> Meet Misty number one came out the same day, but I'm not confident that I bought it at the same time. I recall reading the Dreadstar in my grandmother's bedroom and being stunned by the cancellation announcement. Maybe I stumbled back to the 7-Eleven in a daze, saw a new comic that revealed on the cover that it was only running six issues, and made it my rebound title. I guess my dabbling in star comics isn't as dunzo as I thought. I had a theory that the art style may have reminded me of Jim, the cartoon pop singer, but her debut was still two months off. Misty was a revival of the teenage girls' strips that mostly all died out in the 70s. And speaking of girls in 
named Misty and Things Dying in the 1970s. This has no relation to the British horror anthology of the same name. Marvel's Misty is technically a spinoff of Millie the Model, the comic that kept proto-Marvel afloat in the 1950s, whose main solo title ran 207 issues from 1945 until the end of 1973. She also had 13 annuals and four other spinoffs, totaling about another 100 issues. Despite being largely forgotten today, Millie was once Marvel's star attraction. And how do they treat her? Stick her in the role of aging over a aunt to an ingenue who will never appear in another series. Plainly targeting the Barbie crowd, I was probably one of the very few little straight boys who showed up instead. Misty Collins was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Aryan dream teen. Trina Robbins went fully nostalgic for Marvel's old teen comedy strips, even including credit boxes for the outfits the characters wore, though there were obviously a lot more pastels and random geometric shapes in the mid-80s. Among the paper dolls were Misty's best friend, Cheryl, a black girl, another marker of the changed times since Patsy and Hetty were pulling this shtick. In fact, the series is very much on model with Marvel's many strips about teenage girls being catty with one another in a constant competition of one-upsmanship. One-ups womanship? One-ups personship? I think I'm overthinking a book that is trying to transport a mid-century story engine by middle-aged men for a non-existent teeny bopper readership that is actually less sarcastic and edgy than Stan Lee's Millie and Patsy stories from decades past. My guess is that Trina Robbins drew everybody so pretty and it was just the right degree of girliness and 80s-ness to reel me in. I wasn't kidding when I said this replaced Dreadstar on my newsstand pool list, so we'll revisit this later. Oh mama, it's finally here. The official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition number one, where I'd only toss through who's who at the mall. I devotedly picked up the new and improved Ohatmu off the newsstand every month going forward. So many stats and descriptive texts. I can't honestly say I ever read a single issue from cover to cover, but on any given pass, I was liable to skim through an unfamiliar entry. It was like a book, but for comic book characters. And it was a huge value for the $1.50 I withheld from Savage Tales. Double-sized, in color, no ads. And any given edition could wallow away an entire afternoon. Take my money. Admittedly, the character selection and abomination to Batrock's Brigade wasn't the best, but the Avengers entry alone. I don't recall if I bought my own copy of Web of Spider-Man number 9 off the stand, or if I read my brother's copy sometime later. The Kyle Baker and Sienkiewicz mode cover might have sold me, even if it was black suit Spidey wrangling with an oversized redneck and an old man in an overall steamed costume. I think probably I wanted more webhead tales like Spectacular. And while this one definitely had an ice-cold take on Man Bites Dog news reporting by David Michelinie, it's woefully undermined by Vince Coletta assimilating the attempted art of Jeff Isherwood. I just can't get past the dazzlerness of it all. Long and lasting love is what I always dreamed of. And when I looked into your eyes, I knew I'd really seen love. A long and lasting love. As for August Cinema, I heard a lot about Fright Night, but my viewing would have to wait for VHS. The final straw of my wavering Muppet support was deciding that I was simply too old for Sesame Street's Follow That Bird. This month had a theme between weird science, real genius, and my science project. I'm fuzzy on which we saw in theaters, on cable, broadcast TV, or rentals, but I very much favored the John Hughes nerds creating a sultry Kelly LeBrock on their computer, with a side of Bill Paxton as the obnoxious older brother Chet. We got a kick out of John Candy's family in Summer Rental, but not so much as retaining with Tom Hanks for volunteers. I somehow managed to evade the entire American Ninja franchise, despite everyone else seeming to jump on the Michael Dudikoff bandwagon. It's very possible my first positive association with Michael J. Fox was actually Teen Wolf, which was definitely enjoyed at the dollar show. Ditto Godzilla 1985, except omit the enjoyed part. I can't say which of the initial pair of Return of the Living Dead movies that I saw first, since they shared casts and tones. Plus, they got play on Houston's Channel 39 when I would visit my father's family. I like them, but only the first is a true horror comedy classic. At the flea market in past 
Pasadena that we occasionally visited was a vending machine that dispensed holofoil stickers for movies. I only ever tried it one time, got the iconic return image with the punk rock zombies in a graveyard, and realized that I would never top that. I still have that sticker in a box or drawer someplace. Thought I was a he-man, do it just for me, man, knew just what to do. Thought I was a hero, she rated me a zero, said, honey child, you ain't through. I said, stand up. Have you ever been there? Stand up, identify, stand up, tell us all about it, stand up, testify. Moving on to September in comics, Balder the Brave had a strong house ad presence. But when the first issue hit the stands, I had no interest whatsoever. I talked about tossing through the first issue of Continuity Comics' Armor series at the mall bookstore, as well as other experiences with that company, in a series of podcasts on another of my four-color rolled spine solo shows, Amazing Heroes. Suffice to say that as cool as the cover was, the titular star's absence from all but five story pages, in a book that cost nearly as much as three mainstream superhero comics, meant it didn't come home with me until decades later. A chronology challenge title was Bissett and Veach's Bedlam Number 1, an Eclipse comic that I fished out of the quarter bin in 89. It was a two-issue reprint anthology covering darkly humorous and horrific tales for various publishers dating back to the 70s. The final story featured a black man trapped in an unusual prison who grinds his fingertips to the bone and is forced to consume his own waste, among other disgusting turns. That one traumatized me, or it wouldn't have bothered bringing Bedlam up. The Gladiator story in Daredevil Number 226 was drawn from a quarter bin so late that it's probably disqualifying. Sometime between 1989 and 1991, I figure, and left no great impression. You may be surprised to hear that despite Flag Smasher eventually becoming one of my favorite Cap villains, I did not actually buy his debut in Captain America number 312. I just gave it a real hard looking at on the stand. Also, pretty much missed X-Men Alpha Flight and New Mutant Special Edition. My half-brother may have had them, but I never committed to reading his copies. Heroes for Hope, starring the X-Men, was something my brother would buy a few years down the line. Much like Texas, everything was bigger in the 80s. As much as they were maligned for conspicuous consumption, the 80s also went hard on charity drives. Marvel put everything they had into aiding famine relief in Ethiopia, ironically bringing a murderer's row of talent and offering up the money printing press that was their mutant heroes. Starting with a group shot showcasing Wolverine by Arthur Adams, this special offers Brian Bolland, John Byrne, Frank Miller, John Bolton, Steve Rude, Paul Galassi, Richard Corbin, John Rita Jr., and many more, with pages scripted by Stephen King, George R.R. R. Martin, Alan Moore, Harlan Ellison, Chris Claremont, and yes, even Stan Lee. It's a decent story, with striking moments of horror. Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson were the Bob Geldofs of this affair, and as with Do They Know It's Christmas and We Are the World, there was a fair amount of talent double-dipping when they convinced DC Comics to do their own Heroes Against Hunger the following year. Not to pit two charity efforts against one another, but I think Ethiopia is doing a lot better these days, which I can't say for DC's lackluster attempt. Besides a nigh-iconic Neil Adams cover, Heroes Against Hunger unintentionally illustrates the disparity between Marvel and DC in the Perry Crisis era. The entire story has Superman and Batman battling space aliens and a power-suited Lex Luthor. Both projects feature work by Gray Morrow, Mike Luda, Jeff Jones, Howard Chaikin, and others, but often they switch from pencils to inks, or saddled with less rinkers on the second pass. Kim DeMolder proves to be among George Perez's worst inkers, and Perez himself offers a possible career-low splash page of a tiny Superman carrying a very big green box over a rather sparse desert. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Jerry Ordway, Dave Gibbons and Bruce Patterson, Joe's Kubin and Rubenstein, combined for some of the book's best pages, but they're surrounded by well-intentioned semi-retirees like Jack Kirby, 
Kirby, Kurt Swan, Carmine Infantino, and Ross Andrew. Barry Windsor Smith, Keith Giffen, Ed Barretto, Dan Jurgens, Dave Ross, and Jim Sherman are all thwarted by poorly chosen embellishers. There are no big swings in the writing department, just the guys and a pair of gals that you would expect on a DC title in 1986. Probably because of the charity nature or nightmare royalty split, neither of these books has ever been reprinted. A rare missed opportunity for Marvel and a bullet dodge for DC. I'm dubious about long shot number four shipping this month. I recall a big gap between three and four, and four may have been my first chance to pass on it at the newsstand, rather than being entirely dependent on my brother's copies. This was also where the story started losing me, with its four She-Hulk and Spider-Man guest appearances, a weird Ronnie Reagan analog, advancing subplots and backstory lore overshadowing the main character's narrative. Look glorious though, and whatever evolution Arthur Adams has made as an illustrator, it's tough to compete with his youthful enthusiasm for drawing all the lines on every possible thing. Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe number one, was a solid supplement to a hot move. Marvel was big on giveaway comics in the aughts and 20 teens called Blank Saga, where they'd give an illustrated overview of a property's history using recycled art and big text paragraphs. Those got their branding from this comic. After a few pages of covering the history of the cosmos and huge swaths, the title settles into a chronological recap of the Marvel canon circa Fantastic Four number one. Redcons are incorporated, so after forcing 80s kids to tolerate pages of phoned-in Kirby, they get their John Byrne dessert with James McDonald Hudson developing the Guardian suit, all blessed by Wolverine appearances. Not being a Silver Age comics fan, this title was hugely important in imparting to me all that early Marvel history secondhand. And this title I did read cover to cover. Rod Wiggum is probably nobody's favorite artist, and he's ghostly pale compared to the Mike Zett covers, but I sure was glad to see him drawing books like G.I. Joe Real American Hero number 42, when the alternative was Patience out of the comic book artist nursing home. This one continued the Billy subplot, aka Cobra Commander's Damian Wayne, now joined with fan favorite evil ninja Storm Shadow. Good stuff. Fist of Khonshu, Moon Knight number 6, was another late 80s Marauder Comics quarter buy. It gets a pass because it's an Afrocentric story written by the future Christopher Priest, drawn by Mark Beecham, inked by Jeff Isherwood, with a painted Bilson Kevich cover. I still have that same copy, because it's just too pretty to let go of, and I couldn't really care less about the other five issues of the series before the cancellation. I got into Moon Knight with my buddy's Grocery Sacco comics, basically swiping them and atoning by opening up my collection for him to take a forced trade. Even with the TV show, I'm confident he came out better in the deal, though I still feel bad about it. This could have pretty easily been a Daredevil story, but there's a voodoo angle that tilts into Mark Spector's favor, and it is one of the better efforts to live up to the often unfulfilled promise of that wicked character design. This may be redundant, but the Beach of Mart is sexy. I'm sure that I made it to Nightcrawler number two, possibly aided by the Kitty Pride cameo, but I drew the line at the promised appearance next issue of Banff, sort of Kurt Wagner's Muppet Baby equivalent. There was just way too much fantasy swashbuckling for my liking. I wasn't completely off the Dave Cockrum train yet, but he was starting to remind me too much of the long and toothed Superman artist of the day with his increasing stiffness. Uncanny X-Men number 200 was $1.25, and instead of Wolverine fighting a knife-wielding warpath on the cover, it was bad temporary purple costume Magneto on trial for killing a submarine full of Russian soldiers years earlier. As with lawyers, that just sounds like a good start to me. I let my brother buy this one and read it later. I was intrigued by the couple of pages plainly ghost illustrated by Jim Starlin, almost certainly related to the Heroes for Hope project, but this was never a favorite of mine. Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 109, start cover demands your eyeballs, even if the insides are rather middle chapter. There's a Santa Claus subplot that I won't follow up on, more Daredevil to acknowledge the daredevilness of the not-so-new but kind of daring for the webhead direction, plus a fake-out imperiling a long-time supporting character. This one would eventually get tied up into Venom's origin, but I prefer it as a young Peter David set on sincere grim and grittiness, without any puns intruding. I was still showing up for Blue Devil with number 19, even if it was months late to a flea market booth for a discounted copy. Also a Kid Devil solo story, featuring the Jason Todd Robin from when he was still a Dick Grayson clone. Actually, skipping through a book I doubt I've read in over 
over 35 years. These are all probably imaginary sequences. So if this was my first Captain Cold story, I guess it wouldn't count as such. I didn't skip the following month on account of all that, but it did skip me. So I went without regardless of any intentions on my part. Official handbook of the Marvel Universe number two will wrap up September of 1986, as well as the comics content in this episode. Like I said at the top, I drafted most of the August script in January, but sidelined the show to focus on more pressing podcast matters. I'm currently on page six of the total draft, so if I want to keep this episode in the half hour range, I better start working my way toward the door. This issue had a burn cap on the cover and a Zek one for the entry, so a no-brainer purchase. Starting with a Kerry Gamble beast couldn't have hurt. Captain Ultra stood out as more to the month, years before Wizard Magazine articulated that sentiment, maybe even presenting Captain Ultra as platonic ideal of unideal characters in their first reference to the Dishonor. Can't recall. Not gonna look it up. Somebody should leave. On the pop culture front, it was Slim Pickens at the box office. I was very conscious of Invasion USA, Chuck Norris's oozy and denim-heavy one-man revival of Red Dawn, but I honestly can't tell you whether I ever sat down to watch the actual movie. It was sort of like Megaforce in that sense, though I think the odds are better that I soldiered through the Barry Boswick action vehicle about action vehicles, for nostalgia's sake. I feel more confident that I caught the journey of Natty Gann at the dollar show. Somehow, this may have been my introduction to John Cusack, future idol of millions with more realistic goals, than fending off a foreign invasion on U.S. soil with only a pickup and roundhouse kicks at our disposal. No, we Cusack aspirants just wanted to get a girl above our weight class and maybe get in a little kickboxing on the side. Anyway, I mostly figure I caught Natty Gann in theaters because there's no way I'd have sat through a live-action Disney Decline, Depression-era dog movie all the way through at home. Plus, I knew I already had a thing for Meredith Salinger before Dream a Little Dream, and there aren't a lot of other options for how that might have come about. Also, no, I take shots at Patton Oswalt on his own demerits, not because he pulled a John Cusack with Meredith Salinger. Pivoting to television, I guess I had Farm Aid on in the background, but if I didn't set aside time for Queen at Live Aid, what chance did Willie Nelson have? I had G.I. Joes and Robotechs and Voltron pilots to play with. Speaking of a real American hero, G.I. Joes upgraded to daily series this year, and though I watched my share, it was a bit too broad and cartoony in comparison to the comics and initial animated miniseries. Joining it on the airwaves and toy aisles was M.A.S.K. Mask, a sort of hybrid of the Joes and Transformers, where pilots with super-powered helmets operated vehicles 
vehicles that turn into different vehicles while engaged in spy games with Venom, V-E-N-O-M, acronym, transparently their Cobra. The figures were tiny, with only five points of articulation. I only ever got Brad Chopper Turner, who piloted Condor, a motorcycle that became a helicopter. It was probably the cheapest one, and got as little play with me as the cartoon. Maybe I'm growing out of this. Counterpoint. I often watch Small Wonder, seriously one of the least competent and most cringe-inducing television shows to last more than one season. Look, it was among the first original for syndication shows produced, and certainly one of the only sitcoms or genre shows on Saturday afternoons. My line delivery was better than anyone on this show, but when the choice is a girl robot secretly living with her engineer's family or golf, I'll beg for Harriet Brindle like a Dickensian orphan seeking porridge. Even those easiest to please knew this show was awful, and yet it nearly made it to a hundred episodes. People treat HBO Max Purging Infinity Train like it was a war crime, but in my day, Small Wonder was our best option for entertainment and representation on a weekly basis. I can still sing most of the theme song on command. It sucked. Almost as hard as a grown man creating an anatomically correct little girl with special animatronic abilities for science. She's a small wonder, lovely and bright and soft girls. She's a small wonder, a child unlike other girls. She's a miracle, and I grant you, she'll enchant you at your sight. She's a small wonder, and she'll make your heart take flight. La, 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 la. Microchips here and there She's the small wonder Brings love and laughter What's happening now is another syndication original, but a continuation of a network sitcom that ran from 1976 through 79. There wasn't a lot of black television in existence back then, so even though it wasn't a particularly memorable or well-done sitcom, the much-delayed revival still managed to add another three seasons. It was about a group of friends who hung out and or ran a neighborhood diner or something. My favorite was Raj, the slightly nerdy straight man. Rerun was the fun fat guy, and there was another guy who was basically the black Willie Ames. Shirley Hempel was the female lead, and as a stand-up who specialized in fat jokes, probably the funniest, but I think also the worst actor of the bunch. Six seasons, I surely watched dozens of episodes, remember virtually nothing beyond moments from the wordless credit sequence. There's a reason it doesn't come up as much as Good Times or Sanford and Son. It's fall TV season, so time to check the TV guide for the new show schedules. Still a toss-up between Punky Brewster and Ripley's Believe It or Not on Sunday evening. Unless the Disney Sunday movie had something special on. I know a lot of folks gravitated toward that new show about a particularly resourceful special agent called MacGyver, but I never really got into that. I was more involved with the other new show in that time slot, a fanciful anthology series called Amazing Stories, championed by Steven Spielberg. Actually, I think that may have been a problem, since so many of the stories were conceived by him. Spielberg is a decent screenwriter, but no Richard Mack 
Matheson, who himself contributed two full stories versus Spielberg's 14 pitches. Spielberg's gift is in the execution, and he only directed two of the episodes. The man attracted talent, including Clint Eastwood, Joe Dante, and Martin Scorsese behind the camera, much less a cavalcade of stars in front of it. However, that cost a whole lot of money, featuring cinematic production values pre-peak TV, and again, mostly in service to secondhand Spielberg plots. Everything got subsumed in that audience-friendly, autumnal Amblin sheen. Too safe and processed. I preferred the revival of Alfred Hitchcock Presents a half hour later. Those stories could pull off a mean twist, with an air of dark humor hanging over the often murderous proceedings. I'd like the original black and white series and reruns, and besides adapting the best of those, got cool people for new tales. Hitchcock was discovering talents like Tim Burton, David Chase, and Adam Agoyan, instead of just allowing more established Helmers or Lark. Sunny was a big night for broadcast premiere motion pictures, and though I was seeing a lot more stuff through cinema and occasional cable access, this was still appointment television. Milton C. Hardcastle is a retired judge from the Los Angeles Superior Court. Mark McCormick, an ex-race car driver turned thief, was Hardcastle's last case. McCormick has been placed in the judge's custody, and together they're going after 200 cases that walked out of Hardcastle's courtroom on technicalities. On Mondays, I usually choose between Hardcastle and McCormick and TV's bloopers and practical jokes, depending on which was in reruns. The former teamed up a retired judge played by Brian Keith with an ex-con to solve mysteries and stuff. Plus, it had a cool theme song composed by Mike Post called Drive. I once paid to hear the full theme song on a jukebox at a bowling alley we frequented, but instead it played some sad, slow ballad I'd never heard before. My preference for songs called Drive would flip over time. The other Monday night show had Dick Clark and Ed McMahon at a time when their broadcast omnipresence meant they were members of the family. The rest of the night was counter-programming against football, so maybe a Kate and Alley or a movie. Now that we were living with my stepfather, I drifted away from Trapper John MD, and even the A-Team lost its appeal. Watching more shows solo, I was likely to stick with sitcoms like Who's the Boss, or a new one called Growing Pains. It was a very blatant rip-off of Family Ties, but way dumbed down and totally uncontroversial. I found it to be a pleasant enough distraction for several seasons, and it helped that I thought Tracy Gold was cute. I didn't find Jeremy Miller as annoying as Tina Yothers in the role of the 
Bratty temporary youngest until later season babies were required. They both had treacly themes, and I somehow found the extra waspy, vaguely conservative Alan Thicke and Joanna Kearns preferable to the Keatons. Obviously, Kirk Cameron was being positioned as the next Michael J. Fox. We'll see how that plays out. Moonlighting continued to dominate the night, but I usually tapped out on the 9 o'clock central slot. The Ice Pirates' Robert Urich as a P.I. seemed like it could be promising, especially when partnered with a big black guy called Hawk, but I never hung around to see Spencer for hire. Probably Remington Steel was still drawing me in, or at rerun time, that new show about another Englishman solving crimes called The Equalizer might have done the trick. Wednesday was something of a dead night to me, although I was amused by ads for a short-lived show about a baseball-wielding priest played by the lead from Beretta, the P.I. with a parrot, and future real-life convicted murderer Robert Blake. I never did like that guy, or parrots come to think of it. Thursday offered a choice between the Fall Guy and Magnum P.I., with my mother's libido steering us toward the latter. I may have kept cheers on in the background as I waited for Night Court, which replaced the late Selma Diamond from the first two seasons as Bailiff with Florence Hallop, who herself died after one season. It's a testament to the strength of the ensemble they could go through so many cast changes and be made better for the necessary evolution. They clearly tried to cast two similar actresses, but Hallop went much bigger and offered a zaniness that gave her character its own distinct life. I still preferred Diamond, whose dryness contrasted better against the overall nuttiness of the court, but they were both great. Also, Marky Post finally got out of her Fall Guy contract to join the show she'd always wanted, and the classic formula of the series was almost fully set. My mother continued to follow Knott's Landing, but I was probably playing with action figures in its luminescence. I'm guessing my stepsisters must have been out of the picture by then, because we were much more settled on Friday night. Since we'd moved around so much, I probably didn't have any friends to go play with either. Webster had lost me in favor of the Twilight Zone revival, which was everything Amazing Stories wished it could be. That creepy, haunting, new opening sequence probably delayed sleep for me more than a few nights. If that didn't do it, episodes by Wes Craven, Tommy Lee Wallace, William Friedkin, Joe Dante, and John Milius might have. A little peace and quiet had Melinda Dillon stopping time just as a nuke flew overhead. Children's Zoo allowed a little girl to trade in her parents. A matter of minutes shows time frozen and constructed second by second by armies of workers. Button Button offers a couple financial reward at the cost of the death of someone they didn't know. Where I can snatch a moment of recollection here and there regarding amazing stories, the new and old Twilight Zone tales are firmly imprinted on my mind. Tales by the likes of Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Stephen King, Harlan Ellison, George R. R. Martin, Sidney Sheldon, Roger Zelazny, Robert Silverberg, Theodore Sturgeon, and Alan Brennard, plus restaging of classic episodes. Apparently the show couldn't command the same caliber of writer as Rod Serling's run, when Twilight Zone was among the only showcases for any sci-fi or horror media. The new version leans hard into Satan, as when a child learns infernal magic tricks from the Uncle Devil show, or Sherman Hemsley must outsmart a Mephistophelian Ron Glass to save his soul in an empty classroom, or Morgan Freeman, Garrett Morris, and Emmett Walsh playing poker with a devil in the form of Dan Hadea. Eh, it was 80s. Satan was always near in those times. I often stayed with my 
grandmother on weekends, so her influence returned on Saturdays at least. Never an early bird. I typically skipped anything before the Ewoks and Droids Adventure Hour, and frankly I didn't even make those most weekends. Despite all the referencing of action figure play this episode, I barely watched the Star Wars brand extension cartoons, having either grown out of those specific kitty presentations, or maybe Star Wars in general. I mean, there's not a lot of media between here and the prequels, and I was no fan of those. More often, I'd catch the last season of Super Friends, and its final permutation as the Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians. I'd sometimes dip into CBS Story Break or the ABC Weekend Special, but favorite album in the Chipmunks and Kid Video. That would segue into the Mr. T cartoon, and of course Spider-Man and his amazing friends, even if it was solely reruns by that point. Also in the mix were its Punky Brewster, the cartoon version of the Ragamuffin Orphan sitcom, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, though I was barely a passing fan of the sport, and the show is whatever you call the dude version of Shrill, and the odd Care Bears, I guess because of the power branding? If I was desperate for one last drink of animation, there was the arcade racing game adaptation pole position. We were still watching the facts of life, even though by that point the girls were out of school and running a business. It was just filler before a new show Mama and I took to immediately, The Golden Girls. Sitcom veterans B. Arthur, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and relative newcomer Estelle Getty play Florida retirees making the most of their remaining lives as roommates. I guess late life ice cream shop facts was so forgettable that I'd have sworn the Golden Girls came on earlier, but Wikipedia tells me no. I think Mama loved Golden Girls even more than Mama's family, and her natural vibe was very Vicky Lawrence in a wig and Moo Moo. I don't have to tell you about the Golden Girls. They're delightful, and at any given hour are playing in most rooms of any nursing home across the nation. My personal rankings are Sylvia, Blanche, Dorothy, and Rose. Although with time, Betty White emerged as the personality to beat. Marla Gibbs from the Jeffersons offered a solid follow-up in 227 about the goings-on in the black apartment complex and introduced the comedy stylings of Jack A. You have to understand, Jack A was in everything for at least half a decade after this. All the movies, all the talk shows, all the game shows and commercials. She was inescapable. The original Tiffany Hoddish, admittedly nowhere near as funny, but also not remotely as problematic, I assume. They covered all that stuff up before social media. I mean, America's dad was on the same network. You stayed with me through thick and thin. You watched me lose, you watched me win. You picked me up off of the ground. You never one time let me down. And you put me on a natural high And I can fly I can fly Who wants to see our resume? 21st Century Boys Anthony I Batman Crime Solver Between the Pages Chris at Bad Books for Beginners Chris Lydon Constellation Dana Rubber NYC Ed Moore Fantastiverse History of Comics on Film Hicks aka Flanger Irredeemable Shag JMT Productions Jocelyn Junson Swamp Ninja Comics Marvel Universe Online Project Randy Caldwell Satin Tights A 101 Podcast Surrender Artworks Siskoid Speak Comics Superbound and 101 Warrior for Peace Podcast Charlton Hero wrote Bananas Love it Chris Dunford wrote I had completely forgotten Bananas It was an awesome magazine for 11 year old me Del Dracula wrote Banicula and the less satisfying The Celery Stalks at Midnight and Holiday Inn would be on any resume I composed as well I never felt like it would be acceptable to say I liked Cracked more than Mad though I often did despite a fanaticism for Sergio Aragones that persists today I was going to suggest a book The Glamour Girls of Bill Ward but I googled it and it might not be a financially responsible suggestion. Paul
okay, Bisson wrote, what's today's equivalent of bananas and dynamite? You're asking me? Also, Remington Steele's theme is the He-Man theme slowed down. I think I'd heard about this sometime before, but I'd completely forgotten about it until he brought it up. I, I will add a caveat. The original Remington Steele theme by Henry Mancini is completely different from Master of the Universe. However, when they revise a theme in later seasons, which would have been after Master of the Universe came out, the similarities between the two themes are quite uncanny. There's even a YouTube video that intercuts the two together. Also, the Misfits of Science logo is pretty much the Master of the Universes. Finally, Tim Price, the Podcrasher, writes, My comic collecting had been in full force for a couple of years by this date. So yeah, I remember this month's comics well. Searching my mind for some truth to reveal What thoughts are fantasy, what man? 